Welcome to the Oil & Gas Elevate podcast. Each week, Sean McCoy and Eric Johnson share real-world case studies of businesses in oil and gas that are successfully navigating the complex environmental, social, and governance landscape. These are the stories that are driving the energy evolution. Here's a demonstration of some mental stimulation. We a nation making change. Let me frame the illustration. It's time for us to elevate your mind to a higher place. OGG in the power here to innovate. Innovate. Elevate your mind to a higher place. OGG in the power here to innovate. Welcome to another episode of the Oil and Gas Elevate Podcast. This is our case study segment. Eric, we're at our normal place of recording here in the Canon in Houston, but we're not in a normal place inside the Canon. Can you tell us why? You know, when we first started recording here, this is such a funny little story. You, you and I walked through and we saw this place called Corva. And they really just had some really cool stickers and logos and things. I was like, that stuff's really cool. I wonder what they do. We had we literally had no idea. And then on the same day, almost the same time, you and I both Google it and we're like, oh, wow. Very cool. Texted each other and we're excited to be here in their office and excited to talk to them about some of the amazing things they're doing. Yeah. So we, we connected with Ryan Dawson, who is their chief Corvinaut. And so we'll get to what that is in a minute. But it's a software company. And like he said, we were walking through really amazed by the glass and just the openness and looked, I mean, six, seven monitors in some, some of the offices. And we knew there's some cool stuff going on. And what they're doing, what we're going to talk to you about today is their software that they've developed. One of the softwares that they've developed that helped reach a North American drilling record for an extended reach well at a distance of 32,468 feet. And they did it not just in that capacity, but they did it up in Alaska's North Slope, which we know in the drilling world, if you have any experience around that, is not always the easiest place to drill. Yeah, very challenging environment. And for everybody that is Googling right now, feet per mile, that's a little over six miles, if, <laughs> if I can still do math. Well, it's, yeah, almost, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, it's good stuff. And so before we actually start talking to Ryan, tell you a little bit more about him, he actually got his start in the software world, working for, or creating software for companies like Microsoft and Netflix. He studied government at the University of Texas, grew up in Midland, and he, as he was looking out across the expanse, he looked in the oil and gas industry and saw some problems like this one that he helped want, that he helped want to solve. And so Corva, I believe, was born. And so with that, Ryan, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. So tell us a little about, I mean, obviously a problem solver, it's kind of what you do. Uh, what was interesting about this problem or this type of problem that, that made you want to jump into it? What did, you all, what did you see out there in the industry as far as this particular one? Yeah, I think there was a lot of room for improvement in terms of the digitalization and the technologies. We were seeing in other types of industries how fast people were iterating in terms of introducing new solutions. And I think what was missing in the oil and gas industry was exactly that. So I think it's a mindset as well as, you know, tied to tech specific technologies, cloud, the proliferation of cell phones or cell internet, you know, so there's a lot of stuff interrelated, but Nice. And so in, in regards to drilling specifically, so did the software start out as a drilling based software? Or was it another software that you kind of modified for this particular problem? Yeah, so it started, the original impetus was around automation. It turned out I emailed and tried to talk with a lot of people in the industry and everyone essentially said, hey, you're crazy. Um, so I couldn't get anyone on board to that. But it slowly pivoted to what were the most critical problems in drilling. And we had talked to a lot of people and early on, actually, someone had said, I would pay you if you could make this torque and drag type software. So you know, what that is, is 
the ability to monitor stresses in the wellbore as you're drilling, which is very critical to hazard mitigation, among other things. So obviously that's kind of the opportunity, right? This torque and drag issue, along with some other things in regards to this drilling operation, which is not simple. And we'll get into later on the inside segment a little bit more. But so tell us, so what, what does the software actually do? So what is it? Can you give us, I mean, obviously without telling us too much, but give us an idea of what the software actually, how it actually applies and what is it you created? Yeah, so Corva at a high level is we're taking in all of this real-time data and we're basically analyzing in the cloud and developing different types of insights, whether that's to reduce time, to reduce cost, to help with hazard mitigation, to do alerting. There's so much that can be improved and tweaked, and we're looking at all those different areas and trying to use data to try to offer guidance or a solution to operators who then can take advantage of that. So obviously in an operator standpoint, you know, that's going to impact cost and, you know, your ROP, your how many days it takes you to drill a well, that's always a big factor. We've seen this surge and it's a context of our podcast around ESG, around environment, social and governance. So can you tell us a little bit about how this particular software, in addition to obviously helping the bottom line, how does it apply to one of those three areas that you've seen? Yeah. So, you know, kind of going back to the case study, you're looking at this extended reach well in Alaska. As you know, you might think or know, you know, this is very pristine land. It's, it's very protected. So there's a big environmental aspect. Previous to lateral or extended lateral drilling, you were drilling a lot of short wells and you had to move around and essentially, you know, harm the land to do that. And what's, you know, and not through Corva's own right, but these extended lateral drilling operations allow them to take one surface location and drill miles through and soak up all that oil and really minimize their environmental impact as they do that. So it's a huge thing. And, you know, where Corva sort of comes in is we have a super major client that needs this torque and drag software to do this safely to protect the reservoir. You can imagine if there's any problems out there, they're sort of unwinding the benefits that they get through this environmental impact. So, you know, our software is essentially helping on that hazard mitigation part. So just wanted to that follow up, you know, the super majors, they're doing this drilling in Alaska. So six mile lateral, I mean, how many just, I don't know, probably don't have an exact number, but how many like wells were we able to avoid because we could just drill the one and go six miles to the left, basically. I know we'll talk about it further, and I, but I want people to get some of the scale of what the software has enabled this one well pad to do. Yeah, so I don't want to take all the credit for you know what's <laughs> happening in in this regard. It's definitely a few wells. It you know could be five, could be more, but you know I think it's definitely in a more efficient way to to do this. I think you know operationally and cost for the operator. I think it makes a lot of sense. But you know there's a huge prize there for what's happening. And along that lines, for for the prize itself. So I mean, so is it is it a factor? Is it is a an efficiency factor of maybe a third or half or a tenth? So in terms of how much it's able to accomplish versus regular drilling operations, how much does that software had an impact on that? Yeah. So specifically talking about torque and drag. So what Corvas developed, and this is just one of a suite of applications, is the idea that. Prior to this, and you mentioned Curtis Cheatham, he's one of our, he's our senior drilling engineering advisor. He's worked on these offshore rigs and onshore for most of his career. So he sort of tells this story really great. But the idea is this is a very manual and hand-driven activity, very tedious. And 
as you can imagine, it wasn't easy to sort of transmit this data to other people in the operation. What I think is happening in, throughout the industry is there's these slow pockets of automation coming through and everyone's kind of looking for which stories or which avenues will, will contribute the most. From Corvus' perspective, we do automated torque and drag. So the idea is we take the data and we do everything in an automated fashion so no one has to be involved with this. And so this, in some cases, can eliminate an entire job out there of just recording these values and plotting these values. There's also more you can do with it. You can tie alerts to it. You can, everyone in your team can be on the same page in terms of what exact information you're looking at. And there's just a large reduction of, you know, wasted effort in terms of data entry. You know, one of the things that Sean and I always talk about is if you want to contribute to sustainability, you've got to find a way yourself to be sustainable. And for many of the EMP and OFS companies, that's, hey, we've got to be more efficient, more effective, use more technology, more automation. And obviously, Corva's feeding right into that. But as you go out and you market Corva today, I assume when you walk in the room, you're definitely talking about ROI and your ability to make them more efficient. But I assume all the executives and decision makers in the room are always asking the ESG ESG related questions. You know, how can you help reduce my footprint? How can we, you know, limit the number of surface, you know, actually applications where we're doing. So just want to talk a little bit about when you go out in your marketing and talking to people, what, what are you seeing out there and hearing out there when you talk to the operators and, and, and the drillers and everybody else? Yeah, I think from the top level, of course, Larry Fink of BlackRock has made a great case, which is whether wh- whatever you think about ESG, there is an economic standpoint to being a sustainable company. And so in terms of making investments, that's a sound investment advice to be sustainable. So on that level, I think it makes a lot of sense. It's slowly working down. I think, you know, you have a traditional society of of maybe field or oil workers that were, you know, probably heavy, heavy users, not too environmentally friendly. And then now you have a new class of, I'd say, CEOs, you know, the VPs of environment that are coming down with these new prerogatives. I think it's an interesting balance. I'm not sure you know, many people have landed on you know, which, which side of the fence they should work with because you, you, you have to appeal to the people in the field in terms of you know, what their beliefs are and what their feelings are. But there's also you know, certain people that run the company, right? I think you do at the majors, a lot of the focus is on environment. It is on monitoring emissions. I've yet to see, you know, really a sound story in terms of the math and the technology. There's a lot of science experiments out there, but I haven't seen too much in terms of, you know, actual, you know, hard numbers that that people can replicate. A lot of what I see is super majors develop technologies, they spend a lot of money, and then everyone else in the industry will adopt or, or get that at a much lower cost. So we're sort of waiting for that to happen at the very top level so it can you know, happen throughout. So Ron, you're talking about implementation, you're talking about adoption in some, to some capacity. I know you have your, your consumer software background. Can you tell us about what it was like to, to bring out your software to, like you said, the frontline operators, the drillers, and what that process was like? Was it, you know, was it, was it like what we'd expect a guy, you know, guys out there don't tell me how to drill kind of thing, or was there an openness to doing that? And then maybe some other things that helped solve those problems around that. Mm-hmm. So one interesting aspect of Corvo is we are very design 
heavy, very focused on the best user experience. I think if you ask a lot of people, they'd say, yes, you guys have the best user experience in the industry. Now, there's a very specific business case around that. When we bring this to the guy in the field who doesn't like software, doesn't want to use software, we're eliminating all that friction. And at the end of the day, if you look at it, the people in the field, they just want to do the best job possible for the company, for themselves. And then, you know, they want to go home and, you know, spend time with family. And so I think the motive is there to do that. But, you know, I do have to say they're not interested in working with very complex software. That's just not, you know, that doesn't further what what they're trying to do. So Corvus perspective, it was much smoother. I think we've led the way in terms of, hey, you can do this. You can make great software. You know, you can design it well and people will adopt it. Before that, there's many approaches or strategies taken where let's not involve the field because we can't actually push software out there. And so I'm hoping that some people have seen what Corvus done and said, hmm, you know, we can do this. We're already paying these people out there. Maybe, you know, they can do that optimization or they can help with these projects that we're doing. We don't have to hire more people. I know Corvus is a sweet of services. And we've talked a lot about the torque and drag, but it, we think about the bigger picture and what you guys are offering kind of from optimization and automation. As you see, because I, I do think on an ESG front, things are accelerating very rapidly. I do think we're going to see a lot more adoption, especially as, as you mentioned before, the C-suite is starting to more aggressively adopt these kind of practices and policies and mindset. Over the next three, four, five years, when you think about what Corva is providing, and not just in Alaska, but you know all over the world, and, and especially here in the lower 48, What's kind of your vision of what's going to happen as far as how, when we go out to a well site, what are we going to see? Yeah, so I think the operator of 10 years from now will have to be the best in the world at two things. One is profitability, which I think will be led by automating technologies. And the other is emissions. So, you know, the question is, if those are the two things you have to be really good at, I would hope that there's a very good digital strategy at its core. You know, I think we're already seeing that people have brought these centers to their main offices. So there's remote drilling centers for a lot of big companies. Now, the problem that's happened is people are a little bit gun shy because prior to, you know, a few downturns ago, we got to make do the math here, people had or companies had erected these centers at a, an amazing cost. And Essentially, that what you're seeing now are the effects of many people outspent their budgets, overbuilt, overdeveloped their plans, and now it's very hard for them to get back out there and say, let's develop this strategy. I also think there's another thing at play, which is actually the software and the hardware technologies didn't exist to make this happen. And so what's the point of putting someone remotely that looks at the same screen that someone on the drilling rig or you know, frack site is already looking at. What's the point of that? So you actually need much more smarter software that they're looking at different things, or they're looking at 10 rigs, 20 rigs at the same time, but with higher fidelity. So all of that is about doing automation from a perspective of like analyzing the data and figuring out what's wrong and where do I essentially you know, look at. So the concept at a high level is operation by exception. It's implemented by a few of our c- customers. So they set up alerts for everything that they're sort of interested in. And, and when those problems happen, 
they, they essentially get a notification that says, go focus on this. It's actually similar to how we do our operations at Corva. The way that we scale is we have about 40 people in our real-time operations center. And these people are told essentially, here's the highest priority item that you need to look at at this time. And then once they've completed that task, they'll get essentially a new task. And so, look, we got a long way to go just internally, but as an industry, I think if people want to break this down and move you know, that way, I think that's what's got to happen. On a completely different level, I would like to see someone do sort of the SpaceX approach, which says, essentially says, what is the bare minimum that you need to drill a quality hole in the ground and rethink the entire thing from scratch? I think that would be super interesting. I don't have the money to do it, but... <laughs> <laughs> If it involves rockets, it would be really cool. Uh, yeah, but I love the absolutely pragmatic, efficient aspect of what you're saying, and it makes a lot of sense, especially going forward. So in that, kind of along those same lines, can you tell us a little about, you know, we hear software, I can remember as a kid, first doing the programming, you start with the number 10, and then I remember that first line, and there was a 20, and I did this thing out of this magazine, and all of a sudden I made a heart with a girl I had a crush on at the time, with her name in the middle, right? And so that was a long time ago. Can you talk to us about the complexity of what is it like to be a soft, we say software, and it seems like to me the computing power you're talking about and the ability to write that code and the ability to understand all that stuff is super, it seems to get more and more complex, more and more complicated. And then maybe on top of that, can you talk a little about, we talk about, you know, we talk about transition a lot, we talk about job transition, we talk about careers. Is This seems to me to be kind of the, the forefront of, of one of the areas in, in the future for oil and gas around programming. But so can you talk a little about what is software like now compared to then? How complicated is it? And then kind of how that plays out in the future for jobs in the industry. Yeah, software is much easier to write these days than five years ago, than 10 years ago, than 20 years ago. Actually, there's this big problem in terms of the innovator's dilemma or just the innovation cycle in terms of how long you spend on a problem that the underlying technology, the infrastructure changes. And so sometimes it's easier just to start over if you actually haven't solved that problem within like, three years. So if you look at any long standing project or technology, you know, from a software perspective, if you're going five years, you might want to start over and literally build on new technology. But everything is becoming much easier. These days, they talk about this movement called no code, which is you don't write any code. And there's ways to hook up different systems. There's ways to actually write websites. And I think this is a trend that will largely continue. I wrote an article actually recently about the skills gap and in terms of what they're teaching you in petroleum engineering in school and what they actually should be teaching you. I think that a focus on data analytics, you know, being able to use a business intelligence system, being able to write Python code, these are the future areas that I think are going to be needed or where people should focus. Now, of course, we need, you know, we need those engineering skills, but I might argue that maybe those are more mechanical, you know, paired with that computer systems theory. Expanding on that a little bit, because that, that is one of the things that Sean and I have focused on a bunch. It's just the workforce issues. And I know a lot of people, a lot of our listeners, they're stressed about that. What's their future hold? You know, maybe they've only been in the oil and gas business for 10 years and they're trying to figure out where, where am I going to be the next 30? 
But tell me a little bit just about how it works at Corva. I mean, do you have engineers here that are actually working each of these jobs? Are you training people at the OFS companies, the drillers, and at the production companies? How does that work with y'all's software and how that interfaces with actual production and work and all that? Or maybe it's a partnership. Yeah. So how do we train people to use the software or how do we... Yeah, no, I'll rephrase the question. As we think about how you deploy your software services, I assume it requires people you know, at your, at your customers to understand what's coming through and to use it. And I assume you have people here that, at Corva that are also evaluating the data as it comes in and helping the clients. I'm just trying to, as we think about the workforce of the future, you know, we're going to have more, company, you know, more people working at technology companies like Corva. We're going to have more people that are working at the drillers. I'm just trying to figure out how that, what you think that future looks like, especially as we talk about trying to fill that skills gap, right? Yeah. So one of the biggest strategies that we've bet on in the last year and a half is something that we call the developer center or dev center. And what we're trying to enable through this is we actually think that we have a great platform and we are kind of the company that can enable others to do this. So through this, we're allowing operators, rig contractors, frat contractors, service companies, and startups to essentially build these apps in a fraction of the time. What we noticed when we started with this journey is that people would spend 90% of their project time or development time on infrastructure and only 10% on the actual problem. And so what we're hoping to do is say, no, now you get to spend 100% of the time on just whatever your core innovation is. It's a little bit left to be seen how this will work out. I think there will be a lot of you know, challenges. The, I think change is always hard, especially in this industry. But I think if people latch onto this and I think we're going to see a Cambrian explosion. Well, as we, as we wrap up, I want to take a moment just to talk a little about, so we're in this space, as, as we were talking about earlier, but it reminds me of Google. I just want to take a moment out to ask you, you know, I was really impressed, and I mean this seriously, about your, you, you called yourself the chief Corvinat, so, and you have, it's an open, it almost seems like this fun, engaging atmosphere around your company. Can you tell us a little bit about your cultural values and how you, why you have your, your company set up this way a little bit? Yeah, so our cultural values are, first of all, to be bold. We want everyone to come and feel like they're going to change the entire oil industry. Everyone that joins Corva, that is why they've joined. They want to change the industry for the better. We definitely share the values of transparency, responsibility, and security. An amazing discussion, as always. Love the technology side. I love to see what's coming to the business as we try to you know, kind of navigate all the sustainability stuff, but enjoy the conversation for sure. Yeah, thank you so much, Ryan, for taking the time, providing this space and and some more, like you said, some amazing technology out there. All right, so we will be back after the break. We're going to talk to Jim Oberkirker and get a little bit of insight about drilling from him. He knows a few things about that subject, so stay tuned. Hey, Sean, a quick note about our sponsor, Hewlett Packard Enterprise. Through HPE's extensive activity and experience in the oil and gas industry, they have identified six key areas to enable your company to get ahead of the competition. Cloud-based consumption, advanced analytics, secure mobility solutions, physical and cybersecurity offerings, asset virtualization, and application modernization. So with that, do you want to find out more about one or all of those solutions? Go to www.hpe.com forward slash engage forward slash IOT or click on the link in the show notes for more information and to download their white paper about these subjects. 
Welcome to the Insights segment of the podcast. Eric, we just got done talking to Ryan about some amazing software, some technology, and some things that are happening in the industry. What was your one of your takeaways from that? I'm going to go back to something you mentioned right when we got done recording, was this desire to be bold, right? And this desire to, hey, we're going to take steps to make real change. And that's what we come here for every day. And to see that kind of passion and to focus on that and then push that, I really enjoy that part of it. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more, obviously. And so as we'd like to do, we bring in somebody else who knows a whole heck of a lot more about drilling and directional drilling and things of that nature than, than we do. Even though I started my career at Schlumberger working on the advanced drilling systems department for the Exceed directional drilling rotary steerable tool, that was a long time ago. And the gentleman we have here today would take him about two seconds to kind of get past where our knowledge base. We have Jim Oberkirker here. He's the executive director of the IADD, the International Association of Directional Drilling. I want to say a thank you to Clint Aiken for connecting us. He has 40 years in the industry with doing all kinds of things around drilling and exploration. He's got a mechanical engineering degree from Carnegie Mellon. And Jim, we're just so grateful and thankful for you to come in here and, and lend us your expertise and knowledge. Thanks for having me. You're, you're welcome. So I kind of want to start with the basics. I know, you know, not, not to get too rudimentary and pedestrian about it, but can you give us an idea of those who are listening? We take for granted, I think now, lateral wells and, and directional drilling in general, because forever we just, it was that shotgun effect where you just collect the bugs money thing, you're just kind of hoping to punch, you know, punch a hole. Can you kind of tell us what that was like and, how, and what directional drilling really means? Well, directional drilling has evolved over the years. It used to be just moving out away from a surface location. You know, that was more of a, a well placement just to move away from a pad. Really, it was the Austin chalk that really helped to develop the horizontal drilling boom. And the evolution of the drilling practices, the mechanics, the tools that go into it, and in fact, the mindset, I think, was a big thing. When I first started in the field, if you put more than a three degree per hundred dog leg in a well, you got run off because you'd put a kink in the well and you'd never be able to get the casing down. And now if you can't build 12 degrees, 100 in a curve, you get runoff because you're not building it fast enough. So, you know, over the last 40 years, there's been a big evolution in mindset and technology as to how this stuff gets applied. And so now you fast forward to kind of, kind of today or what we're talking about with what Cora was part of with this extended well that was drilled out in the North Slope. So we're, we're talking six miles of pipe. So... Kind of give us an idea what that is like in terms of, I mean, managing that and the, and the, just the mechanics and the operations and then to do so efficiently and not just, and not just to poke a hole in the ground, but you're actually doing other things around that as well. That's right. Yeah. It, it's really a very complex operation overall because you have a lot of moving parts, pun intended with that, <laughs> you know, things like the hydraulics, you know, you have to get the hole clean. You can't just cut the rock. You have to actually get it out of the hole or you can just drill yourself into the well. We were talking about torque and drag earlier, you know, being able to understand the process of that, the effect that has on the mechanics of the drill string, of the rig, of the bottom hole assembly. All those things have to come together to be able to do something to that extent. And so can you take us through a little bit of the evolution around torque and drag and where, kind of like an, how this software or how these advances are needed in order for us to be able to go to those extended reaches in terms of distance? Yeah, torque and drag is probably a pretty good example of that. Because we're, we're putting forces on the pipe in the BHA that wouldn't have been thought of 10, 15 years ago. So understanding the, the impact that that has on the systems themselves is critical. You know, it's a survivability thing. You know, will the drill pipe actually do what you're asking it to do? So that's one element of it. But in order to drill these longer and extended reach, you really have to 
pay attention because there's not much margin for error. You said, you know, 10, 15 years ago, we wouldn't be able to do this at all. So I, I want to, you know, connect the dots a little bit, talk about Corva and, and talk about some of that, that technology and that software and just talk about, give us a little idea about how this used to be done and now how the technology and the software is helping us getting it done even quicker, better, faster. Well, there's been, there's been a huge evolution in the technology. You know, I remember back to my early days in college, you know, the types of computers you know, where I was, it was probably the biggest computer in the world, and it took up five stories of a specially designed building, and it had less computing power than my phone. So it's that rapid evolution of the computing technology, and then I think followed by the adaption or the adoption of that technology. That's where I think some of this stuff comes in. The capability of making these calculations uh, very quickly and without a lot of human input is really where that comes in. Now, the challenge comes in is how that's being used. It's one thing to come up with an answer. It's something else for the person who's in charge of the operation to use that answer and use it efficiently in order to get the biggest value out of it. So it's kind of a combination of these things. You know, the you, you get folks that do they trust the machine? Or are they going to look in their tally book and see what I did three wells ago or a well 10 years ago and try to use that answer to go forward? So I think that's part of the evolution that's taking place. And I think you're starting to see that speed up, though, a little bit, you know, with the, with the changes that have gone on in the industry in the last two or three years. You know, essentially the big crew change is over. So the, the older, experienced guys are, are largely out of the industry now. So you have a younger, more tech-savvy group. Now, there's pluses and minuses to that because the younger ones are more adaptable to technology like this, but they may not have the same depth of experience as to how to employ it to its best advantage. So there's a little bit of that challenge that I think in order to be able to engage in a service like Corva to the most effective way possible, there has to be that balance of experience and openness to use the technology. So kind of, kind of spinning off that just a little bit, you know, we, we tend to, ESG is a big thing now. There tends to be this feeling like it's now, it's in, now the environment is important. Now, you know, all these things are important, but they've, they've always been important to some degree. Yeah. Specifically in the North Slope in Alaska up there, can you, because that's usually one of the, the hotbeds that are very easy for, to, for us to pick on as a public. When drilling in the Arctic Circle, drilling up north, and there's moose, and there's, you know, we're, we're destroying the environment. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of drilling up there and why these extended reach wells are so necessary in, the, in that part of the world? Well, actually, the North Slope is a very cold place. It's not a hotbed. But other than that, <laughs> it certainly is a place that has used these types of advances because you don't want to be offshore when you're drilling in the area, primarily because of the ice. So the cost of putting a facility that four or five miles offshore that we're now drilling to makes it prohibitive. You just can't do that. So, you know, the old saying, necessity is the mother of invention. If they could have drilled the well shorter from a different place, they probably would have. But if you can't, you have to adapt and you have to do it. And I think you're seeing that across the industry, you know, the, the unconventionals. You know, we've been drilling through these reservoirs for almost 100 years and they just nobody ever thought that they were productive until you go sideways and frack it then all of a sudden it becomes one of the biggest plays in the world 
So I think both of those are kind of an example of what we're talking about. And then employing the types of services that we're talking about here and getting, getting the most out of it, I think is really, that's really the challenge that faces the industry. I want to circle back to kind of kind of the workforce discussion. And we talked a little bit, you know, with Ryan about this, but we want to get your thoughts. And you, you've already touched on a little bit, this kind of new generation that maybe doesn't have what you might call it kind of the institutional knowledge of that history and all that experience that helps them maybe maximize their use of the data that's presented to them. But just talk a little bit about, you know, in the next five or 10 years, what, you know, when you think of, you know, drilling, somebody's out there doing the engineering, the drilling, you know, what is that ideal engineer and, and what do they look like? What was their skill set? Heavy data scientists, just your thoughts around that. I'm going to start with a quick story. Just a few years ago, I was at a major operator with several other of my peers, you know, same experience base. And we were talking after a meeting. And there was a young engineer there, about two years, real bright guy, real bright kid. And I was kind of watching him out of the corner of my eye. And he suddenly blurted out, he said, I wish I could just plug into your brains and suck out all the knowledge that you have. But you only get that by seeing things over a period of time. So there's perspective. There, you know, there's the information, which is one thing. But then there's perspective, which is something else. So to answer your question, you know, the conventionally trained petroleum engineer in the industry, I think, is going to have to adapt to these other areas as well. Because, you know, knowing how to do the calculation on torque and drag is one thing, but using it when it's being done for you to optimize and make something more efficient may take a little bit different mindset or skill set. So, you know, the flip side of that is can you train somebody with another discipline to use that information a little more uh, proactively? That will be the question. But I, I think, you know, generally you're going to see the, the younger folks be a little more adaptable, be a little more ready to use their iPhone to watch for an alert when an alert comes up that says, look, this is a problem, they know what to do, or at least they know who to call to address that. And I think that that really helps to streamline that and help to minimize the train wrecks. That's what you're really trying to do is, is not have a train wreck. You want to be able to drill a well within a certain window and try not to have that train wreck because that's what, that's what kills the economics. So can you tell us a little about how does IADD fit into the oil and gas industry from as an organizational standpoint what do you you help i guess you have to kind of help us explain that role that y'all play well it has evolved we've been around for 15 years now so when we got started it was one thing it was a way to you know there are other professional organizations but they never really focused on directional drilling so we stayed focused on that which directional drilling by itself is a very wide ranging topic you know you can go from tools to software to applications to all different kinds of things but where we're trying to pivot now is be a source of information, the training, and then standards. We're doing some projects with IEDC to establish some standards for VHAs and bits and the other components that go into it so that we're all singing off the same hymn sheet. I'm sure you can say that you know, if you don't have good data coming in, it's not, it doesn't matter how good your software is you know, you're not going to be able to do it. So we have to be consistent with that. 
So those are the types of things that we're now pivoting towards in order to assist the industry. And here again, that experience base that we were talking about earlier, we do have a lot of, have a friend of mine calls them mossbacks. The, you know, the old gorillas that they move so slowly that moss grows on their back, but, but they know where all the banana trees are, you know? So, <laughs> so we're trying to have that kind of interaction where the younger people can, in fact, gain from the experience of the older guys. Tap into your brain, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly. I personally don't have a USB plug on the side of my head, but... <laughs> I want to take a step back, and, and I joke about this all the time. We even joked about it earlier. I have an accounting degree and a law degree, and you mentioned earlier all this torque and drag and what, all the calculations we're doing and whether we're using software to do it or whatever. We're trying to avoid the train wreck. So explain, I mean, we're obviously putting immense pressure down the hole. And if we're going to run at six miles, I can only imagine how big it's getting. But talk a little bit about what the train wreck is. And you made a point that's so important, I think, that Sean and I talk about all the time is we can do a whole bunch of ESG things, but we got to focus on economics. So talk a little bit about kind of what that train wreck is and how it can totally destroy the economics of a well. Well, I'll talk about the unconventionals first. The challenge with unconventionals from an investment standpoint is that you have too wide a range of drilling results and you have too wide a range of production results. They're not, they're not predictable enough. If you take a well in the Permian Basin, just an average well, Wolf Camp B well, three or four years ago that well was taking 40 days to drill. They're drilling them in 10 now. So you can see that's one reason why the recount is much lower. We physically don't need the same number of rigs. The problem from an economic forecast standpoint is that there's still a pretty wide spread in that 10-day delivery. So you might deliver three or four wells out of five in 10 days, and then one takes 15 and one takes 25. Well, that hurts. That hurts your economics from a predictive standpoint. The other thing is the production curve. You know, so these wells have a huge spread in terms of how much they produce. One well will produce 1,000 barrels a day. Another one produces 500 barrels a day. Another one produces 1,500 barrels a day. So how do you predict what your financial outcome is going to be if you don't have a good tight control on your costs and you don't have a good tight control on your outcome? And people in the investment community, you know, they don't care how fast you drill well specifically. You know, it's not like, you know, we're going for a record. They want to see a consistent return on investment. Well, those are the two biggest variables that you have that go into it. So if you can manage those things, then you have a much more marketable investment opportunity. So are those uh, those longer drilling periods, are those because of mechanical failure, operational failure, or just they didn't plan the log or the, or the well properly, or what's the? It's normally a mechanical failure that one of the pieces of equipment breaks now, but that is often related to an operational failure, that you either pushed it too hard or you didn't recognize the warning signs that the tool was coming, telling you back said, I'm about to break, I'm about to break, I'm about to break. Oh, too late, I broke. And you know, now, now you've got a million-dollar fishing job <laughs> that you have to, have to go around. And this is some of the things that the software can help with, especially when you can automate those alerts. And you know, for some reason, I guess maybe you pay more attention to your phone when it goes off that says, hey, I'm about to break, than, <laughs> than you do when you're on the rig. 
So is it a Siri voice that jumps on and says? <laughs> it could <laughs> is it be. Alexa? <laughs> it could be. <laughs> could be. So real quick, one of the last things I want to ask you, Jim, is you've seen a lot, like you said, you saw a massive change in just the way that, you know, what was even physically possible. And not just, in, you said it earlier, but those are, that was a massive change in terms of our ability to, to, do, to move laterally, if you will. So looking forward, I mean, do you have anything that you see kind of like that you think is going to be a big, or that you would maybe say this, what would you want to see going forward? How do you see the future around, let's just call it a drilling exploration, maybe the culture, like what are you hoping to see the industry do in the next 10 to 20 years? Well, I think the biggest opportunity is a more precise wellbore placement within the reservoir itself. We take sort of a hand grenade approach when I think we should be taking a sniper approach. The hand grenade approach is you just pull the pin, throw it in the room, blow it up, and then you pick up the pieces. And that's what a lot of operators do by, they say, well, the frack's going to sort it all out. It doesn't really matter where we are in the reservoir. I don't think that that's true. And I think we have, we're starting to see evidence to support that. There are much thinner, more defined zones that if we stay within, you're going to get a much more consistent result from a production standpoint. The industry is just at the forefront of that now. But I think that there's a lot of things that can be done to stay within those zones. And we have the technology to do it from a well delivery standpoint. The, you mentioned rotary steerables. Mud motors have come a long way as well. So I think that that's probably the opportunity that if the industry grabs, that you're going to see a lot of. This will lead directly to an improvement in the overall financial performance. We won't have to be reliant on $75 barrel oil to make these things work. And we always talk about economics driving our ability. You know, this podcast is focused on ESG, but we always talk about economics. But it's, it's that kind of vision and saying, hey, we're going to be snipers and do this better, quicker, faster, more reliable, more predictable, better use of capital. And to hear that as a direction, I think that's inspiring. It is. So, Jim, thank you so much for taking the time to come out and talk to us. It was insightful. No pun intended. It really was. Thank you so much for all you've done and continue to do for the industry. And we just want to wish you the best of luck going forward. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jim. All right. With that, we're done. So we'll see you all next week. Thanks for listening. We're out. Hey, everybody. It's Savannah from OGGN. And here are the events on deck for June 2021. This month, we have six events. But if you'd like the full list, you can click the link in the show notes to sign up for our events newsletter. We send it out every month, and it includes more info about the events that I talk about here. We even include events that occurred two months ahead of time, so if you're interested in always staying in the loop about oil and gas events, make sure to check that out. This month, OGGN will be hosting two events. One is online and one is in person. For our online event, we're hosting a live stream titled Deal Value Creation, M&A, and ONG. This is going to be on June the 2nd. And for our in-person event, we're relaunching our happy hours. It's been far too long since we had a good happy hour, so I'm sure plenty of you will be excited to hear that our next happy hour will be at the Cannon in Houston, Texas on June 24th. At this event, you'll be able to meet some of OGGN's hosts and network with other oil and gas industry professionals, all while enjoying great food and drinks. We hope to see you there. Other than OGGN's events, we have two in-person and two online events. First up, we have our two in-person events, which are the Energy Capital Conference on June 2nd at the Omni Houston Hotel and the U.S. Police and Fire Championships from June 10th to the 21st. The Police and Fire Championships will be hosted in multiple locations, so make sure to check out our events newsletter for more information about that. Next, we have our two online events, the first being the Post-Industrial Summit Series. This event actually started on May 4th, but it'll be ending later this month on June 22nd, so there's still plenty to see. And our second online event is the Big Data Industry Summit from June 9th to 10th. 
If you have any questions about these events or any of our shows, make sure to reach out to me through my email in the show notes. That's all for June. I hope you guys have a great month and thanks for tuning in. On behalf of the Elevate podcast team, thank you so much for clicking play and bringing to life these amazing stories. We hope this elevated your perspective and serves you well as you navigate understanding ESG and the energy evolution. We are so grateful for your time and kindly ask that you rate and review the show on Apple iTunes, which is a great way to help us grow. The best way to support the work we are doing is to tell a friend about it, ask them to listen, and share with others what you've learned from listening to our guests. Lastly, we want to invite you to reach out to us for any comments, suggestions, or just to connect. You can do that through my email, sean.mccoy at oggn.com. I'd love to hear from you and what you think of our podcast. Be safe, and we look forward to bringing you another episode next week. Here's a demonstration of some mental stimulation. We a nation making change. Let me frame the illustration. It's time for us to elevate your mind to a higher place. OGG in the power, here to innovate. innovate. Elevate your mind to a higher place. OGG in the power, here to innovate. Ha!